Radio Days Africa podcast is brought to you by the Vids Radio Academy. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for your patience as we navigate as we navigate technology. Welcome to today's installation of Radio Days 2020. Of course, you know that hashtag is the new normal. I'm Rafilo Mpakanyane. I'm your discussion moderator for today. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about and asking questions about the state of our newsrooms, the state of newsrooms in Africa. Before we begin, I'd like to remind everyone registered for today's discussion that uh, questions can be sent right here on the Zoom chat. You can also send your voice notes to country code plus two seven seven nine five two eight double zero double zero so that's plus two seven seven nine five two eight double zero double zero you can send those whatsapp voice notes and of course a very big shout out and thank you to cas media as well as the this radio academy for making all of this happen and uh, thank you to the rest of our sponsors as well so Here we go. Today's topic is uh, newsrooms in Africa. And we're gonna be taking a look at newsrooms on the continent. What do they look like currently? What are the challenges that they are experiencing and having to deal with? And we're going to expand that to journalists on the ground, as well as the quality of coverage, uh, especially in the radio environment. And then, of course, this whole discussion takes place in the context of our continent of extended geography, which is a variety of socio-political as well as economic challenges. And uh, where does radio news fit into all of this? Um, what would it be the most immediate source of information for so many of these of our communities? So on that note, I'm pleased to announce my colleague at Prime Media, Matlatsi Matlatsi. She's Matlatsi is the group editor-in-chief for Eyewitness News, as well as the chairperson of SANA, the South African National Editors Forum. Matlatsi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. And you can unmute yourself. Good afternoon, good afternoon and thank you for having me, Rufilo. Well, it's, a, it's, it's an absolute pleasure, not my doing. I just happen to be the moderator, but we can thank, like I said, Radio Days uh, Africa for all of this. Um, and next up, I'd like to welcome Maria Matiam. She's a journalist and consultant at Africa Check at Codis Riam, as well as the Children's, Children's Radio Foundation in Senegal. Good afternoon, Maria. It's good to have you on. <laughs> And we get away there. And then, uh, last but not least, is um, last but not least is uh, Francois Brad the second. He's an Ivorian radio and TV journalist living in Boaké in the center of Ivory Coast. Um, Francois has had extensive. Uh, experience in private radio that's where he started his uh, journalism career uh, he's lived he's also worked for private as well as uh, regional radio stations as well and he is one of few uh, bilingual that is uh, francophone and english um, uh, english journalists in his area but i'm uh, really looking forward to having this conversation with you as well francois welcome to radio days africa welcome that's a great pleasure to be with you today it's an absolute pleasure to have you all with us. And I'm really looking forward to getting a digging in deep and getting to the meat of and uh, the heart of so many challenges uh, and perhaps breakthroughs as well. But first of all, let's start with the fairly obvious and establish the place and the role that news radio plays on the continent. I alluded to the fact that for so many communities and in so many countries, radio is, of course, the first port of call and the most immediate place where people can get news. But Masati, 
Lindsay, um, maybe I'll start, I'll start with you and move on to Mariama. If you could set the stage, for instance, uh, and let me know from your own personal experiences and knowledge, the place of radio newsrooms as a source of information in South African communities. Thank you, Rafila. I think uh, in South Africa, like in many parts of the continent, radio is truly a source of life. And I don't exaggerate when I say that because many of our communities are purely dependent on their radios, whether they live in far-flung areas where there is no electricity. Uh, in some communities, TVs have not reached them as yet. So the radio is the friend. The radio is that source of information and essentially a source of life. Uh, we know that in South Africa also it, it plays quite a critical role because uh, we have radio being able to broadcast in the many different languages in South Africa. And that is quite key. And also if you look at the continent where we still have challenges in terms of um, literacy rates, the radio plays that critical role as it can broadcast in the local uh, community, in the local languages that uh, communities speak. So uh, newspapers might have still not reached many communities, so radio really is that source of life for many communities on our continent. So, Francois, to pick up um, and to carry on with what Mathlat is saying, set the stage for us, please, um, in, your own, in your own experience. You are living and working in Bwake, in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and the place that the radio holds in the community there and in, in the country at large. Talk to me about what that's like. Thank you very much. Let's say, just radio Eli is like my mother. The same role my mother play is the one that the radio station play in my area. It means it's the source of information. Through radio, it's possible to connect many people all around the world. For as Cote d'Ivoire is concerned, especially my area, Boaké, in the central part of the country, let's say that radio play a very specific role. Broadcasting through languages, I mean, our local languages that we call our mother tongue, many ethnic groups are in this area, but okay. we are connected through radio station. Radio is sometimes different from um, TV because we can add to our rooms, our living place broadcasts, but TV is sometimes difficult for doing that. So radio is source of life for me. Radio is source of cohesion. And radio is like, I mean, a very specific tool for the development of our different communities. So having established how very um, pivotal a source of information radio is, it is July 2020. The world at large and the continent are at an interesting place, but also at a, at a scary place because of this global pandemic that we're experiencing. Matlati, talk to me about how, how your understanding and the keenness with which you feel the importance of um, the, the, newsroom, the newsroom and the radio newsroom, um, how does that affect how you operate during these times? And of course, we'll talk to uh, economic pressures and imperatives that are pulling at you and making you make certain decisions or allocate resources in certain ways. But, you know, from an operational standpoint uh, and from a community um, a, a community stamp, um, organizational standpoint, how is that impacting exactly how you operate and go about your job? So I think uh, we've had to be many things to our communities. The first one was to be a source of information. As you said, we are all navigating our lives through this pandemic that 
many of us knew very little about. I think uh, in December, it was a distant uh, disease somewhere in the east of our, co- of our world, and it was slowly making its way to the African continent. So the first thing we've had to do is to be a uh, source of information, what is actually happening with this uh, pandemic, and then also to educate. Uh, a lot of us uh, still are learning what uh, COVID-19 is and how it actually manifests itself, and also so we know that the scientific world is also learning as we go along. So we've had to play that critical role of educating society and then also being uh, raising awareness. Uh, I think all of us as newsrooms uh, took it upon ourselves to say that we have to raise awareness, especially with this disease where personal responsibility and personal action is so critical in fighting uh, this invisible enemy. So we've had to play all of those roles and then also added to that, continue with what newsrooms are all about, which is to hold uh, those in power accountable. And we've had to do this, whether it's in a looking at how public funds are being spent in responding uh, to this pandemic or decisions that those in power are taking or the actions of security forces as the, um, you know, they were actually put in our streets as part of responding to this. So we found ourselves as a newsroom having to be all of these many things. And especially when the world was, um, when people were very much separated from the rest of the world, we also had to be a place where they could actually connect. Uh, You can imagine with many of our countries going under lockdown and people having to stay at home, critical that as a newsroom, we are able to still have that sense of community, whether it is coming together and helping those that are in need or just sharing in the anxiety and the uh, going through the crises of um, this disease. So it's been quite an interesting time for a newsroom where you are thinking of yourselves just outside of what you do every single day, but taking on the re- this responsibility of playing your part in making sure that we are able to respond to this crisis. Why why take on the additional role of being that friend, of being that source of comfort, um, when you could merely be focused on giving accurate, dependable scientific information when it comes to COVID-19, for instance? No doubt, we've got your hands full when it comes to speaking truth to power or holding those in power accountable, right? Um, what's happening on social media this morning when we wake up and we read about the IMF um, loan to South Africa. Most people, if social media is any kind of dipstick or test uh, for um, the zeitgeist, believe that money has already been squandered and looted. So why not focus on those things and, and, and set yourself up for what, what might, some might view as a programming imperative as opposed to a newsroom imperative? Because, uh, as we said, radio is a source of life, and all of those different facets are part of who we are as people. So we've had to uh, respond to that. And also, newsrooms are critical to um, the life and times of any society. So we can't just be one thing. But also, as a newsroom, we also feel that we are responsible and have a critical role to play in ensuring that we are able to respond and have a fighting chance against uh, this pandemic. And that's why we've had to take all of these different um, responsibilities. And of course, when we talk uh, newsrooms, it's not just, you know, the news bulletins, but we're also talking in terms of our programming, 
because they have played quite a critical, critical role in just being able to be a platform for our listeners to engage with experts, to get answers as we are going and navigating these uncertain times. Yeah. All right. Let's head on over to Cote d'Ivoire and Francois, I see you there on the couch waiting your turn. Um, talk to us about, um, you know, how you in your newsroom in, in, in Boaké, in the middle of Cote d'Ivoire, how you've been able to respond to the challenges um, during this time of COVID-19 and, and how, how it's impacted your society at large, but uh, yourselves as um, reporters and journalists with it, living within and working within that society. Yeah, let's say that uh, we say radio is a source of life, as I said at the beginning of uh, my uh, of our conversation. Radio um, plays a very specific role. And in terms of newsroom, um, we in team, we live together with the community. When there is maybe a pandemic and we need to give them the information is new program that we create. We create new programs added to those who have already used to inform the people. And but at this level, it's a kind of responsibility. You journalist, and there is a kind of newsroom. Through the newsroom, we, you have to give information to the people. But what kind of information are you going to give? You have to find the good source of information. Here is the good one. You have to go deeply to find the correct information in order to deliver this information to the population. So journalists in Côte d'Ivoire, in Africa, generally speaking, and in Côte d'Ivoire, play a very specific role in this pandemic. Let's give you an example. In Côte d'Ivoire, for example, when COVID-19 started in our country, all the journalists of the area met and decided to create uh, a broadcast to create a programs that can help population to know well this pandemic and know the different um, addicted measures uh, that the government delivered to the population. And in the area, we are around 15 radio stations. It can be web radio, uh, community radio. We live, I can say, we work together. We have the same program. If I broadcast here in my radio station, the other radio station have the same program and all the population are connected to the radio. We notice that the, the, the listenership of radio station in Africos in our area is going higher and higher. It's the same thing in the other uh, localities, in the other areas of the countries. So people see the importance of radio station. And Boaké is a strategic area in my country because all the, I can say in quotation, all the big and uh, important events start in Boaké. Mutinies in Boaké, uh, I mean, um, uh, different events, bad or good in Côte d'Ivoire, most of them start in Boaké. So it's up to the, the journalists to know the importance of radio station. And our newsroom has diversities, many things in our newsroom that permit to guide the population, tell them that this is information coming from the government. This is the information that you have to put in your mind. This is what you have to work in really um, in good collaboration to be a, a, in a peace environment. So radio is a tool that everybody, I don't say like, but everybody love in my area. Through radio, there is no distinction to say 
this come from other area, this is uh, from the northern part, it's a kind of cohesion because we're listening the same radio program. You know, um, what Matlate also, Matlate also touched on in, in her previous answer was exactly that, uh, which was holding those in power accountable to deliver on their mandates. Um, and of course, COVID-19 and this pandemic is a specific, has its own specific stresses, right? And it's incumbent upon you to do that during this time. But Matlate, in terms of the state of, uh, the state of play here in South Africa, um, perhaps let's look at something like um, media freedom or press freedom. Where did you think we were and how easily were journalists able to hold those in, in power accountable? We know that we've had a, a strong cohort of investigative journalists who were able to break stories, national scandals, um, bring things to light, which essentially took over uh, the national discussion uh, and even set the national agenda in many ways. But, you know, how strong and how strong are we now compared to those times? I think in South Africa, we're quite lucky that we have a constitution that protects uh, media freedom. Uh, we know that in many parts of the continent, this is still a challenge and uh, the constitutions of many countries is not explicit in protecting the right of journalists to do their work without fear or favor. In South Africa, we are one of the few uh, countries and uh, the media in this country has taken up that responsibility and continues to uh, really ensure that those that are in power are held accountable. And we have continued to see that investigative journalism in uh, times now of COVID. I think in the beginning, we struggled quite a bit in terms of, you know, who to talk to. There seemed to be some attempt from the government to control who was speaking to the media, including some uncertainty in terms of academics being able to share their opinions in terms in, in whether it is with the government as chosen strategy or even just uh, allowing for uh, information to share information as experts and we've had to basically uh, speak and demand that uh, these walls are not put up and uh, we are allowed to speak to uh, anyone that we wanted to speak to and uh, and those that are experts have also come to the party in terms of having uh, those co uh, conversations we've also continued to see journalists um you know, looking especially in the distribution of money and how money is uh, public funds is actually spent in COVID-19 uh, response. And the investigative journalism has actually uh, continued. And that is actually quite pleasing because, you know, it is in a state of disaster where we've seen in uh, other parts where those that have always wanted to control the media, taking advantage and even extending uh, uh, the laws that had to be put in place as part of responding to this disease uh, to their advantage by trying to gag and silence uh, those that are their critics. Uh, we, 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 we've been lucky that as a media, we've been able to push back. There are things that we still haven't managed to uh, secure. One of them is uh, we've been asking the presidency in South Africa that every time he addresses the nation, uh, the media should be able to ask him questions. Uh, we are still uh, 
uh, waiting on that and, and hoping that it will happen the next time he addressed the media because we think it's quite important for accountability and transparency that as the leader of the country, we are able to ask him uh, how the government has come to those uh, conclusions as opposed to him uh, just addressing uh, the nation. So that's part of what we are trying to do to ensure accountability at this time because it's very easy for people to use the state of disaster or the state of emergency as has been declared in many parts of our continent to then uh, abuse the system and you have uh, dictators um, you know using the opportunity to actually um, uh, tighten their grip uh, on those countries. We see at the same time, and it's, I think it's a global sort of mood and shift, um, and it hasn't, you mentioned dictators, um, and, and I think immediately of the vilification of the media, for instance, far away, but in the US, but so pertinent to setting the mood, and we look to we look to Europe as well, um, where more right-wing um, uh, influences want to further that cause by discrediting uh, and sort of more liberal media. When we come back here at home, the pushback then seems to be then, who holds you accountable? Who holds the, me- the newsroom and the media accountable? And by what standards, right? Um, and I'll go, by what standards? And we'll go back to a round table that you were part of a couple of weeks. I can't tell because COVID time, everything, <laughs> everything happens, you know, very, very quickly. It seems so far away. It was, I think, late June when you had that round table with um, opposition leader EF, uh, of the EFF, uh, Julius Malema, and addressing the stories that have been written about him with relation to the VBS bank, essentially corruption and collusion um, to that end. Um, And you were part of a group of journalists that were invited and accepted to take part in that discussion. One that, you know, for for many people uh, left a bit of a, what's the word, sour taste in their mouths <laughs> when it came to the rifling through and looking at um, Malema's, you know, looking through the contents of his wallet. But, you know, there is the opportunity to uh, speak truth to power, for instance, or to hold people accountable. Do you engage them on their terms? Come to my round table uh, and my press conference, as it were, and, and then you try to hold me accountable. When do you know which parameters to push or to play within and which parameters are justifiable? Look, I think, I think in any um, story or in any incident, um, you know, there's different ways to hold those in power accountable. I think the first question you did ask was who holds us accountable? And that's always a critical thing because what we are seeing, especially in South Africa, is that once people are caught with their hands in the cookie jar, the first thing is to label media all sorts of things, whether it's white monopoly capital or it's Stratcom, etc. But uh, in reality, we operate, we have a self-regulating system where uh, we have the press council. We've also got um, state regulatory in the sense that we've got the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa, where uh, the broadcasters are also held accountable. So we don't have a media or a fourth estate that is a lone ranger in any way. If we do get things wrong, there are places where members of the public, uh, the politicians, or any of the newsmakers can actually go and say, this was actually unfair reporting. And we would be um, 
penalized for that. And we know in South Africa over the years, we've seen instances where the media has had to apologize and the apologies have become embarrassing, whether it's putting up lampposts, uh, putting up posts on lamps to say, oh, we are sorry, we got it wrong. And we know what is the cost of having to apologize and what that does to the trust relationship between the public and those media uh, institutions. But I think largely in South Africa, we've had an opportunity to hold those in power accountable in many different ways. Um, some work out in terms of ideas and how they were discussed. Some don't work out and we learn from them and we move on. But I think the important thing is that even when um, media or journalists face criticism, which is quite harsh sometimes, quite threatening sometimes, and actually sexually abusive and many other things, we have seen South African media continue to push through and uh, showing an amazing amount of bravery. Uh, we can go across the border in Zimbabwe, for example, where similarly we've seen uh, the state trying to silence uh, reporters in, uh, in many different ways. And the media there has been relentless and continues to push uh, uh, the envelope as far as they can in terms of ensuring that there is accountability. So I think both sides, as a media, we continue to learn and improve. Uh, but I think what is important is that we can be held accountable, but also we are not silenced in the face of, uh, of pressure. We continue to push on. Francois, from your um, vantage point um, in Cote d'Ivoire, can you relate to the environment within which uh, uh, South African newsrooms operate in, where constitutionally uh, journalists and journalism is uh, is protected, but also, you know, we're talking about that that political freedom to uh, sit in an, in a room with a politician, whether they are from the ruling party or the governing party or from the opposition. And uh, as I said, you know, if, when invited to look through their wallet or you know to to investigate them and freely print uh, despite uh, any pushback what is the scene like in 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 Cote d'Ivoire thanks thanks so much thanks so much in Cote d'Ivoire the situation is uh fair goods and i can say through the different work that journalists perform every day we can see that there is a kind of freedom of press in Cote d'Ivoire because everything that we do is, regu is regulated. We have uh, a national association of journalists in Cote d'Ivoire. And this national association of journalists has the, I mean, the burden, the charge to control the different activities of the journalists and supervise our different activities. Now, when we talk about newsroom, newsroom in our different radio station or radio station in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Let's say that there is, uh, first of all, the staff, the staff that work in our different newsroom, the staff is really qualified. There are good journalists. Even if we have some pressures from some political leaders, but we can say that African journalists, uh, generally talking in uh, Ivorian journalists, work in uh, fair, good condition. But let's say that... Uh, can you help me? I can hear you. I was, I was going to interject there, Francois, and ask you to, you know, if you could establish for us this um, this phenomenon of uh, a green press and 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 blue press and how it's come about. Because you're saying that the conditions are, are are quite good to to an extent, but why do we have yes. the phenomenon of the blue press versus the green press? Right, one which is supporting the incumbent yes. in power and the other that supports the opposition. How does that come about, and and what causes that? 
Okay. In Côte d'Ivoire, unfortunately, there is two groups of press. Investigative journalists are very scarce in Côte d'Ivoire. There is a, a, a printing press that we call Elephant de Chenet. This is uh, the one that everybody knows as an investigative press in Côte d'Ivoire. But there, there are two groups of press, blue one and green one. The blue press are those that follow uh, political actors of the opposition, and for the ruling party, it's a green press. The condition of working in our different newsrooms become different. It, generally talking, African journalists and Ivorian people, journalists work in good condition. But when we take the two groups, blue groups and green groups, you will see that the conditions are not the same. Those who are the opposition, following the, uh, the opposition parties, work in very difficult conditions because finding the required financial means for the press is difficult. We know Africa, when you are the ruling party, you have more financial means than those who are the opposition. Unfortunately, this is what we notice in an African uh, institution. In Côte d'Ivoire, when you are the opposition, the blue one, the, a question of uh, tools, technologies for working. People mm -hmm. seems like it's difficult for them to find this. When we take national television, the national television is not for blue, for the ruling party or for the opposition, it's for the old population. So technologies for working there are very easy to get. They have tools for working easily. The number of people working in the staff is Cool. But when you see in the blue one, you will see that under staff, people are not in good condition of working. But what is unfortunate is that the, the information that they provide, they have a part. They support the different political leaders. If you in the blue press, what they write as guideline in the newsroom, they talk about everything, but focus on political supporting the actors, the political actors, it's the same thing for the ruling party, you know. So, so if you can, if you can also then talk to us then, uh, Francois, about how it's like in that environment to be able to get access to politicians, right? Because of course you you want to you want to hear directly from those newsmakers, those who've got their hands on the levers of power. What does access to politicians, uh, wh whether you are blue or green, look like? Is it still the same as, you know, your access to resources? Getting access to politician um, is not difficult for all. When I take, uh, if you're in blue press and you have to get access for the, to the ruling party, normally it's not difficult. You just maybe send them a letter or you call someone that you know there and you have the authorization to, to meet them and make your interview. But the environment change when you go nearly to the election. Let's uh -huh. see the case of uh, the presidential election in Cote d'Ivoire now. You notice that if you are the opposition press and you want to meet the president, maybe uh, the head of the country just for an interview, it's not going to be easy. It will be difficult for you. But it's possible. It's possible to meet him, but difficult. If there is a meeting of uh, the ruling party today in Boaké, for example, we live in a good communion, in good association for journalists in Boaké. But you will see that some journalists for the ruling party will be invited 
but the others are not invited. I'm taking my case. I'm not journalist for the blue press. I'm not journalist for uh, uh, the red press. I'm middle. I'm investi investigative journalist working sometime for international radio station. The situation is that uh, most of our colleagues are focused on a political program, following the political actors for, for really making report on what they do. But as journalists, this is not the right way. Ivorian journalists are really good journalists, but this, when you are in this, in this situation, getting access to information becomes difficult sometimes, getting access to information. But if there is no blue and green and all journalists at the same level, you will see that working will be easy. Getting access to information will be easy. In Cote d'Ivoire, there is uh, you know, an institution Francois, I just want to interject there and, and just insert another question, which is the, you know, you, you spoke, you've set up a, a very interesting scenario of partisan reporting and journalism, but at the same time saying generally um, Ivorian journalists are well-trained. Well, let's bring that back and put that mainly on the table and deal with that for now, Makati. Here in, in, in your own newsroom, for instance, um, and in the South African newsroom uh, at, at, at large, when it comes to the juniorization of the newsroom, this has been a cry for over a decade now that there are so many young, uh, there's such a young cohort that comes in and doesn't have the benefit of mentorship of those older colleagues who, and perhaps you can answer this, have left for whatever reason, they've gone into the private sector. What is happening there? What training, what uh, mentorship happens perhaps in your own organization but uh, at large, what are we what are we not getting right in this in our part of the world? I think um, part of it is the existential financial crisis that the media industry has been facing uh, across the continent and across the world. We know that uh, the funding models that we've been that we've relied on, which is relying on advertising. Um, revenue that is no longer uh, able to keep us afloat. And we've seen with the shrinking uh, newsrooms over the years, uh, I think the VIDS uh, state of the newsroom study showed that we had lost about 10,000 uh, journalism jobs in the past uh, 10 years, which is quite staggering if you think about it. And because newsrooms were unable to afford more senior people uh, to compensate, they would hire more junior people. And then we would have this crisis of juniorization of the newsroom. And that has a major impact on accountability, uh, on us holding those in power accountable, because it is with experience uh, that uh, you know you know you can you can excel in the trade of journalism. And also, when you don't have that mentorship, then there is a gap. I think that this crisis will deepen in the next coming months, especially with uh, the fact that you know this existing. A crisis, financial crisis facing the industry has now deepened because of COVID-19 and the disappearing uh, advertising uh, budgets and revenue for media houses. So that crisis will actually deepen. I think there has been an attempt in terms of, you know, training uh, uh, journalists uh, over time, whether it's by the uh, training um, institutions or even corporate South Africa sponsoring uh, the training of journalism or even um, our organization, the South African National Editors Forum uh, doing training, especially ahead of elections, uh, just to ensure that we are able to 
uh, cover and do justice to a critical part of any society which is holding elections. The, the crisis that we're facing now is that the newsrooms are shrinking even further because of COVID-19 uh, and that loss of revenue. We've just seen uh, freelancers being let go almost immediately because uh, campaigns uh, stopped uh, almost immediately and also uh, those were on contract those contracts were not renewed and actually it's become even harder to be a journalist because some of them have continued working and have continued uh, publishing but they've had to face salary cuts of between 30 and 40 percent so uh, the newsrooms are really really under pressure uh, you know we we already had this crisis and now that crisis has deepened somebody said we were basically holding on on the edge of the hill and then COVID came and it has really pushed over many uh, uh, media houses and uh, what the future holds is really quite uncertain given where we are finding ourselves where there is uh, retrenchments, salary cut, uh, etc. So that crisis might actually deepen which means that we have to intensify and invest in training uh, the remaining journalists in the newsrooms. Mm. And, you know, uh, and I'm guessing you're saying this with an eye to keeping that quality in check. Uh, and of course, referring to about 12 days ago that that um, the, the reports and the notice that Section 189 notice that went out to Prime Media specifically being uh, our uh, organization, you know, that there'd be a process of consultation with staff. Um, uh, and that's at large, you know, so and, and that's, of course, uh, Prime Media not being the only news organization or media organization being touched um, by, by these events. So how do you keep an eye to quality and maintaining those standards? And I'm going to move to Francois and the specific sort of tensions that um, he's dealing with uh, in Ivory Coast. Thank you very much for, for, for this opportunity that you give me for really expressing myself about this uh, problem. Training is something very important in the career of a given, given journalist. Training in Cote d'Ivoire is something important. We noticed that there are some institutions, they are great association of journalists that give opportunities to journalists to be well-trained. But all the journalists don't have access to this training. There are two kinds, as I was saying, but here we talk about professional journalists. In Cote d'Ivoire, the professional journalist is defined that like a journalist who has uh, identity cards of journalists and a journalist that is recognized by the association and also journalists that work only in journalism. When we take the case of correspondents in Cote d'Ivoire, for example, the correspondents most of the time are teachers, teachers in private school, teachers in primary school and high school, but they are also journalists. They are not called professional journalists. So sometimes concerning the training at the higher level in the different institutions and organized by the Association of Journalists, these journalists are not accessed to this kind of training. It's only the professional journalists. But in the milieu, in the, in the domain of media in Cote d'Ivoire, it's not only uh, those who are professional that work like journalists, because they play a very specific role. Even the professional, I can say they work hard to really contribute to the, develop, the development of the country. But those who are not professional, those who don't have any identity card of journalists, work very hard. When we take the case of this pandemic uh, moments, those who are in the area of Obwake, 
if you want to just select them, you cannot find more than 10 among uh, 50 that work as uh, professional journalists, but they work hard. They go toward the government to ask them the information. What is the real information we have to deliver to the people? So training problem, getting access to training is not easy for all. But as a journalist, if you work hard, there are international organizations that can have highs on you to say this journalist contribute to the development of this area. We have to help him to be well-trained. I can give an example. And, and, and would you be an example of that kind of international NGO intervention, right? Because that's you, that has been your own experience in your own career. Is that the yeah. same for so many others? No, it's not the same for many others. Why? Because journalists um, in Africa, most of the time, they are underpaid. They don't have money. So the objective is to get information, but other objective, I can say the second one, is to get money. They think mm -hmm. about their belly. They think about the condition of their family. So if I'm underpaid, I don't have anything just to, to find something for the survival of my family, I'm not really focused on the training. So my situation, I can say, is not so exceptional, but it's exceptional. Because when I came in Boaké, in the local areas, the community radio, I say, I don't have money like the other journalists for being trained. What can I do exactly for my community so that international actors get eyes on me to help me be trained? This is how I start. And I help my localities, the different areas, making reports on agriculture, on human rights, and many other things that concern my communities. And at the end, I got opportunity through the U.S. Embassy to get to the United States for being trained. And notice that they are um, English-speaking countries pressed. They have, I can say, more opportunities of training because most of the time they are bilingual. There is a kind of barriers of language. I, I speak, I just try to speak English. So I have the opportunity to get access to many sources of training. But if you speak only French, and you don't have access to uh, English-speaking countries uh, training. And for only for French-speaking countries, there are many journalists. And you're just a starter. There are professionals. Are you sure that you can, you can get the same opportunities like the others? No. So it's uh, as a very particular case. But I'm sure that authorities are working hard for uh, the training of all the journalists. But it's up also to the journalists to make an effort to get in this scale uh, to be selected for being trained. Now, I, I want to, Karen Matlati, I think you wanted to interject. To add that apart from just uh, quality journalism, one of the crises we are going to face, especially with shrinking newsroom, is uh, journalists who specialize in certain beats. I think uh, mm -hmm. there was a time, uh, you know, in any newsroom, you would have a health reporter, a political reporter, an economics reporter. But as newsrooms become smaller and smaller, uh, those that specialization disappears. And as newsrooms become more junior, uh, we don't have... Uh, 
uh, that specialization and the outcome of that is that you don't get the kind of in-depth focus that you would like on any particular uh, topic. And I think in some newsrooms, this has been exposed, especially when you're dealing with the crisis like the one we are facing. Many newsrooms currently don't have a specialized health reporter and it would have been great to have one, especially at this time. But I think that is the crisis of a shrinking newsroom and when um, media houses are not able to invest in newsroom is that we are losing that. And also you look at things like investigative uh, reporting. That is, that costs a lot of money. It takes quite a long time. And uh, when people when you are in this crisis that you're in, you tend to lose uh, those expertise and uh, that ability to do investigative reporting. So the consequences are quite dire, I think, for our democracies on the continent and also just uh, holding those in power accountable. So then can I push back on that statement? And in many ways, you've also preempted uh, my next question, which was a follow on from the kind of the lack of resources that um, newsroom or the lack of resources being experienced in newsrooms. I mean, Francois sort of told me, uh, you know, in an off, uh, offline conversation about the fact that what also sets him apart in his ability to report is the fact that he has a vehicle, right, by virtue of this, uh, this um, universe of resources and, you know, other uh, outlets that he's been able to create for himself. But his colleagues don't have that. Coming back home then, what are those necessary but lacking resources that could make and should make a newsroom shine? And can we, in 2020, in the age of people cutting the cord and people going niche when it comes to where they get certain content, uh, can we afford to not have subject matter specialists when it comes to journalists who only follow, uh, follow specific beats? As in, um, if all you have are five, uh, maybe is this the day where you start to where you start to make that decision and say of those five, three will specialize. Look, you would like to. And I'm sure you I can tell I've never, I've never run a newsroom. So, <laughs> as editor in chief, I would really prefer to have specialization because, as I said, you know, it allows for in depth uh, reporting and it allows for somebody to have built contacts over the years, which means you're able to find exclusive stories and you've got uh, newsmakers that will trust you enough to share with you information as opposed to uh, a diary every day that is based on what is happening today. And and following on the day-to-day events. So I think any editor-in-chief would like to have that seniority and that specialization. But I think where we are finding ourselves, we have to be quite creative. We are looking for jacks of all trades and sadly masters of none. Uh, But at least what we do hope for is that uh, the, the qualities or what is needed for quality journalism uh, continues. Uh, we are, especially if you're working for a radio newsroom, you know you've got an hourly deadline and those, <laughs> those, those bulletins need to be refreshed with some new uh, content. Uh, so you still need people that are general, general news reporters that will be able to do that. But I think overall, though, when we do lose, you know, you compare ourselves with like international news agencies, you look at many broadcasters, many of them are gray-haired, uh, and uh, they've been in their fields of choice for a very long time where, you know, you can find that somebody specializes as a 
senior White House correspondent, and they are already in their 50s going on 60, and they earn more than their own editor-in-chief because they've earned uh, the title and they're really particularly good at what they do, and they don't have to become a manager to earn certain salaries. Whereas on the continent, you know, when you start wanting to earn a certain amount, you better be a manager. And then we, use, we lose that, um, that experience out in the field, and by extension, our listeners also lose out in terms of hearing that in-depth knowledge uh, with, with, which can take you back to, this is what happened 10 years ago in this particular thing, and we are seeing it uh, happen again. I don't think we should um, lose the value of that. And I think if newsrooms can, we should continue to invest in specialized reporting. But we know when we are cutting down on budgets, as we are currently, then you start deciding on, you know, whether we will go all the way to Limpopo to cover uh, when a young boy falls into a pit toilet and yeah. do that story justice. Because if you can't afford it, then you won't be able to go. So those kind of stories then are done over the telephone and the quality is then compromised. But that is the reality of where we are finding ourselves with uh, budgets being cut, that those resources are, not are no longer there. And that will have an impact on how you actually tell the story. It means that you might find that story from smaller towns, uh, from municipalities, disappear uh, because we just don't have the resources to send people there. And that would that is quite a pity. I mean, you look in South Africa, you read the Auditor General's report uh, when it comes out, and the state of our municipalities is... is um, and nothing to be proud of. And we need to be focusing there. But when you are cutting back on resources, that ability is limited. Sure. So, Francois, to that end and what Mahlati is talking about, the funding of, um, of newsrooms and, I guess, media in general, would we, would we, are we in a position, do you think, to start looking at different ways of funding and not being mainly or largely advertiser-based um, are we mature enough as, you know, as, um, as an industry on the continent and as consumers to be able to afford to be interested in subscription models uh, in any way or try to find some added value in which, um, in, in which newsrooms can start to pull in money as well? Yes, the, the problem of money is uh, a real problem in our different newsrooms. The required financial mean that we need for working hard is a problem. As I was, I said, journalists are underpaid. And this has an impact on the quality of the work that we have. Let's give an example very easily. When you work in the newsroom, the quality of information that you take, you get in the area, let's talk about the correspondent in the local areas, for example. The correspondent difficultly as the financial mean require to move from one place to another one. So is supported by most of the time by people that invite him to, uh, to, to cover an activity. They give him some money and he gets back. But when you get back to your newsroom or to your, your radio station with money given by someone that invites you, are you sure that you're going to give a quality of work no, I don't think so. So there is a kind of impact. We compel to, to, to really uh, make the publicity of some uh, product before getting money, but getting support from um, the states of the, co the country, getting support from the government is not easy. Most of the time, they, they require money that we need for working hard, for working good condition, 
goes to the national radio station, to the, the national TV station, by the private and local radio station that work very hard for the communities, deliver information coming from the government, don't get any found for working easily. Mm -hmm. So if we follow this case, corruption will be set in uh, the, the middle of media because I go to work, I don't have anything for, for moving from one place to another one. My, my, my head, don't give me the money that I need for working. What am I going to, to do? It's not professional. So mm -hmm. the fact to lack money has an impact, a negative one in the production of African journalists, especially Ivory Coast journalists. But I'm sure that this is something that we have to put in our mind. If you need to be professional and get ahead in your work, tell yourself that when you come in media domain, there are already difficulties. How can I work hard to put outside these different difficulties and try to improve the media environment? This is what each journalist of the world, especially the, those of Africa, have to put in their mind. If we think so, if we believe in this way, I'm sure that even if we have difficulties of financial means, but with the quality of our work, we can get opportunities of trading somewhere just to help us work very hard in our media domains. Well, let's, uh, I'm going to head on over to the chat. We've got a question here for Mashadze saying, um, there's a struggle to get news as a community radio journalist. How best can a community radio journal get to uh, balance stories, particularly those that involve service delivery or human interest stories? I think the one great thing about being a community radio station is being on the ground and uh, being, and that means you have to be in touch with the society or the community that you're reporting for. Uh, they need to see you as the first point of call when there's a crisis to tell you a story. And so it's important for any community uh, journalist to be known within communities and they can be known if they do quality uh, journalism. So I think the one advantage of being a community uh, radio station is that you are able to know of the issues in your area and then uh, profile them. And people we know love hearing from people that sound like them and people that they can relate to them. And you're quite clear about who your audience is as opposed to a national broadcaster that is trying to satisfy uh, everybody. So I think what is important is to make sure that your community radio station is part and parcel of that community where the community trusts you enough to give you tip-offs when things happen. And then also that when there are issues in those community, you are able to cover them. I think that's the one way of doing that. The second issue is keeping tabs of uh, the local councils. I think there's a, that's a treasure trove for stories. As I was mentioning earlier, the Auditor General report every year tells us about um, the many shenanigans that our local uh, governments uh, get up to. So if we have quite a hand on the pulse of uh, those local councils, that can be a place for uh, news uh, stories. But also equally, we shouldn't forget those that are quite influential in our societies, which is, you know, the, the local businesses, because they also play quite a critical role in those uh, societies. So I think the important thing is to always remember, as you walk around in those communities, the people you meet, that's potentially your next story. And talking to people and asking those right questions, that's when you can get that local news that is relevant to your society. 
Mm, absolutely. Here's one for you, um, Francois. It's, uh, it's from Christophe who wants to know, um, being based in Boaké, whereas everyone else wants to be in the capital in Abidjan, how do you keep your uh, spirits strong or keep your spirits up as a journalist uh, based there? Okay, thank you. In Boaké is a very special town all, all over Africa because, as I said at the beginning, everything starts by Boaké. Even good, good uh, uh, football players, Boaké. Mutineers, Boaké. Peace, Boaké. Freedom, everything starts by Boaké. So this is a very specific town in the world. But let's say that when you want to work for your community, you can find all the different strategies that are given to you. Don't say that it's because there are difficulties in Boaké, so oh, I, I leave the place. No. If everybody wants to leave the place, who is going to stay there for working for, uh, uh, for the community? So we have all to stay there. Abidjan is very far from Boaké. Yamsukro is very far from Boaké. But we need, as uh, like the spirit that I have, I say, Boaké is my family. If I leave Boaké, who's going to give news from Boaké? If everybody wants to leave Boaké, how will be Boaké? So I stay here. Whatever the situation that I face here, I stay here. And I have to put in my mind that I have to work hard. If I work hard, even journalists coming um, abroad, from abroad and want to get news from Boaké, just they have a core, and as I have a link with the community, I know the different problems of the community. There is no need for me to go far from the community, but I have the information I give abroad, and I have many sources for really verify my information. So the spirit of mind that I have uh, in Boaké is that like you have your mother. Let let give you something. <laughs> your mother is maybe. Uh, 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 a sorcerer, let's say something like this. But it's your mother. You cannot let her and go elsewhere. It's your mother. You live is your mother that give you birth. You compel to support her. But telling your mother that the way of working is not good, try find a way to make improving of the community. This is the state of Boaké. Let's work for our community. I have a patient for Boaké. I don't know why. Let's give you something, not to give bad image of my country. Sure, but sure. every time I have problem with, I mean, bad people. I've, I've been uh, staying at home for one month without working because I, I've been kidnapped. I get problems, people violate me. You cannot imagine three times people get to my living place to steal everything. But I'm in Boaké. Because if I leave, who's going to work? Yeah. So this is the spirit of mind I have. I call the journalists all over the world, Africa especially. If you live in the community and you work for your community, believe and think that it's because before you, some other people came and worked for the community that you find this same community as you are. This is the spirit of mind I have. I have a passion for Boaké. Mm -hmm. I, I invite everybody. On that impassioned note, uh, really, really enjoyed my conversation with you, and I hope you all did. Um, 
unfortunately, we, we kept having a technical issue with Mariama, who I introduced, obviously, at the top of this discussion, and uh, she kept fading in and out. So, unfortunately, we're not able to interact with her. But uh, thank you to our panelists, Mahlati Mahlase, as well as um, to you, Francois Ambrada II. Really appreciated your insights this afternoon. Um, and uh, thank you for the attendees as well, for their questions as well as their comments. A big shout out and vote of thanks to the Bits Radio Academy, as well as CAS Media, for making a Radio Days Africa 2020 possible. Uh, I'll be back for tomorrow's panel called Hello, Is Anyone Out There? And that looks at, um, that's going to be looking at listenership uh, in radio during this pandemic. Thank you, and we'll see you again tomorrow. Thank you for joining this Radio Days Africa session. Click to watch or download the podcast. That was a Radio Days Africa podcast brought to you by the VIX Radio Academy.